and welcome to this next Brexit and Beyond podcast. And I'm delighted that our guest this week is Danny Dawling, who is Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. Hiya, Danny. Hiya. I have to start off by showing off and say I have read a book by Halford Mackinder. Oh, well done. Uh, (laughs) Which one? Is this on on how to control control the globe? Democratic ideals and reality, I think it was called. Oh, oh, that was one of the nicer ones, yes. Yeah, yeah, but it was just before Brexit and before this project started, my next project was going to be a book about Indian foreign policy. And everyone was talking about Eurasia at the time. And I sort of discovered Mackinder. Yes, he had a theory that whoever controls the world island, um, you know, Eurasia, uh, can control the world. Uh, unfortunately, the, this led to the United States uh, thinking it really needed to control Eurasia, and hence things like Vietnam as, as well. <laughs> I still have I have relatives who 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 refer to Western Europe as uh, West as West Asia because uh, if India is South Asia, then Europe is West Asia. But anyway, we'll leave that for now. Yes, go on. Uh, Danny has written, I looked at your CV online, actually, I didn't read it all because I didn't have a few days spare, but 42 books. So I'm going to start you off, Danny, with an easy one. Which one are you most proud of? Oh, uh, the one I like the most is a little book called The 32 Stops, uh, which is about the central line in London. Um, it's my only slightly fiction book. Um, so that's my favourite. Oh, all right. Well, I'm not going to talk to you about that one, actually, but I do, in a sense, want to touch on well, both your most recent book, Fintopia, but also the, the stuff you've done on uh, inequality. And the inequality and the 1% was a book that made a real impression on me. I mean, partly because of uh, the arguments in it, and I'll come back to that as well, partly because, and I, this is why I recommend it to all of you, some of the illustrations in it are things of beauty. And something I've always wanted to ask you, actually, is did you do them yourself? Uh, I draw them myself to begin with, and then I uh, ask a really nice graphic artist to redraw them again. And that, that's how you do it. I mean, it really, really brings, uh, brings the book to life. And, and I suppose linking that book with what you know, we do, how important do you think inequality was in, in, in the Brexit vote? The problem is I'm partisan, you know, so I've worked on inequality for 20 years. And so there's an automatic bias. People always want to say that the thing they're interested in was key. It is worth saying that before it was even decided we're going to have a referendum of the EU 28 countries, the UK had the highest Gini coefficient, the biggest inequality gap of all 28. So that could be coincidence. It could well be an intervening factor. Uh, unequal countries tend to be countries with very little trust, for instance, and it might be that trust was important, but it's it's really hard to ignore, given that inequality in, in the UK was, was at such a high uh, level. And also, it's really odd that one of the, the five large countries of the EU is the first to have left. You'd expect it, I'd, I would argue, a smaller country, but this large country was really, really unusual, was the most riven of all the countries. Interesting. I mean, I, I do sometimes think that, you know, and we'll come back to the sort of talk about the left behind that we've had after the referendum, but actually we, we're sometimes in danger of forgetting the fact that it's relatively prosperous voters who made up the majority of that Brexit vote. And I, I, I sort of think that's something we sort of left to one side a little bit in our in our eagerness to talk about the left behind. But I mean, surely, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about Brexit is 
would you think it's fair to say that we now talk about inequality more than we did before the referendum because of the referendum? A little bit because of the referendum, although it was slowly going up the league table of import when people were asked what's the most important issue to you politically. And traditionally, they would always say, well, sadly, they would say immigration. And then after an economic crash, they would say the economy. Inequality, because it's such a nebulous concept, found it very hard to ever get into the top 10, but managed to get up to number five at, at one point. And it isn't, I should say, it's not that people in poorer areas, of course, voted to leave. In fact, people in poorer areas are much more likely not to vote at all in, in the referendum um, and not to vote at all in general. The kind of ways in which inequality can affect Britain at the extreme is it helps create a very strange Conservative Party, a very strange right-wing party, uh, far more orientated to the right than Conservative parties in most European countries, and of course funded by incredibly wealthy people, which you could only get in that concentration in a very unequal country. Um, so you could argue that in a sense, uh, David Cameron and Boris Johnson were products of British inequality, and if the UK hadn't become so unequal during the 80s and 90s and so on, people like that would never have risen to the top of politics. So it's, I mean, it's, it's far more all pervasive, if you like, than simply saying inequality played a part in the vote. It structures society, it structures politics, it structures opportunity, it structures everything. It affects us really, really deeply. You can see this when you talk to people in very different countries, in Nordic countries and Scandinavian countries. Uh, I never forget talking to a, a right-wing mayor, of a conservative mayor of a town, whose politics were to the left of Corbyn. This was in Finland. What we take for granted in the UK, things like private education, which doesn't exist in most of Europe, doffing our hat, still a, still a class system, uh, all, all kinds of a hierarchy of universities as wide as our hierarchy. Mm. There were all kinds of things that, that we think of as normal, which in other more equal European countries look anachronistic and that that really does matter and the fact that our conservative party i think it was 2014 long before the referendum left the european people's party group the conservative group and, and joined a group which at the time included alternative for deutschland in it you know it takes a very unequal country to have politics like ours uh, the, the best place to look for similar politics is the united states which is a little bit more unequal than the uk yeah it's interesting isn't it? and, and those those sort of the sort of politics of the European Parliament was always cast an interesting light on our politics. I remember when I think the Lib Dems were toying with the idea of joining the uh, the socialist group in the European Parliament uh, <laughs> because they were the closest yes. sort of and the sort of stick they were getting here at home and just that, that sense that there is just a complete mismatch between our politics and the politics of continental Europe. Yeah, it, it is. It is very odd. In a way, you know, the the referendum and Brexit at least have taught us. Uh, more, more about the mainland for most people. Um, it's, our, our ignorance was was staggering. We, we didn't join to join. We joined as a kind of marketing opportunity, as a, as a commercial opportunity, because we were sinking down the economic league table uh, internationally. Uh, and we joined to try to regain our position. We didn't join because we actually wanted to be a member of the club. We just wanted to be richer and not see our ranking in the world fall. And that's an odd situation to, to have been in. Yeah, and I suppose absolutely crucially, we shared none of the sort of political objectives that all the other member states had linked to European integration, which in the end, I think, was one yeah. of the reasons why we never quite got it 
even when we were in. But and, and, and we were not invaded during the Second World War, you know, and that it it changes your your the view of a nation very much. I think. Uh, yeah. Sorry, but we you know we we have to accept that for the moment the UK was odd, is odd. At some point, it won't be odd. You don't carry on being odd or exceptional forever. But but to not accept that, I think I think is strange. Yeah, no, fair enough. And the other thing I think that that Brexit flagged to those who weren't aware of it, and I suppose given your job title, you have to be aware of it, is the importance of place. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that we are talking about place an awful lot more post-2016 than we were beforehand. Is it? Would you see that as sort of long overdue? Uh, yes, it is. Um, but part, you know, we, we, we talk about our North-South divide for decades, but didn't see it as terribly important. But even in the 1980s, I can remember uh, measuring health gaps in Britain. And we had the, the largest regional divide of any country apart from Germany before the wall fell. Eastern Germany had worse health than Western Germany. After the wall fell, uh, the health gap in Germany reduced and you know the, the north-south divide in, in the UK was the biggest uh, divide within any country uh, in Europe. We kind of just took it for granted, and this is part of the inequality thing. It does. It didn't matter that those people there were not living as long or were not going to university as much. They 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 kind of didn't deserve it. Which and you can only have that attitude in a very unequal country, where theories of some people deserving and some not deserving. Uh, rise to the fore. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the people who seem to have just discovered it now, it's quite striking. But do you, do you find this sort of idea that does the rounds nowadays of levelling up credible? Um, <laughs> no. I mean, it's very clever. They're good at phrases, aren't they? You know, that's just yeah. two words. Well, take the GDP of London, GDP per capita. <laughs> Supposedly you wanted to level up to that as the highest GDP that we have. You know, it, it, it's impossible. Or you could say, let's level up to the life expectancy of Kensington and Chelsea. Now, there were years in recent years where life expectancy in Kensington and Chelsea was rising by more than a year in a year, um, which, of course, if it had carried on, that, that the residents of that borough of London would have been immortal. Now, what was actually happening was that Kensington and Chelsea was filling up with the world super rich and anybody who wasn't well off was having to leave. But the idea of levelling up so that everywhere is like London or like Kensington is, is, is just silly. But tragically, it sells well as a kind of concept because we've also managed in Britain to denigrate the idea of equality, to denigrate the idea of equality of outcome and what's fair and say we're all in a race and we have to try to get to the top and we should have a level playing field. But, you know, if you don't make it, well, that's your fault, really. But let me let me push you on that. Let's just say, and, you know, for those listening, we're, we're speaking just after the weekend in which Dominic Cummings left. But let's just say your mobile phone rings in half an hour and it's the Prime Minister saying, Danny, I want you to come and be my Chief of Staff and I want you to be in charge of my levelling up agenda. For all your cynicism on that, what would you say could be done or should be done to start to address some of those real issues? Oh, a huge amount could be done. Thomas, I mean, and what you do is you use the work of experts around, around the world. Thomas Piketty and his colleagues showed that by far the most important factor for reducing income inequality is progressive taxation. Those countries which kept progressive taxation at higher rates have far less inequality now. Um, this is places like Germany, those countries like the like the UK, which dramatically reduced top tax rates, uh, encouraged the hoarding of, of money at, at the top. 
So increase in progressive taxation, which of course is sellable now because of the pandemic and the enormous amount of borrowing required by the pandemic. That the, the last time Britain had big increases in progressive taxation was after the first and second world wars. So I would begin with that. I would then try and convince Boris about schools and education and a more level playing field on that. Uh, and you'd be asking him, you know, to, to reject a lot of his own being, his own upbringing and so on. Mm. Uh, um, and that, that would be difficult. And uh, then you'd move on to housing and the quality of housing we have and why it is so poor compared to so many other European countries and, and try and, and level that up. So I'd be willing to go with it, but I think it's important not to see the kind of pinnacles of British society, the richest parts, you know, obviously completely impossible for everybody to, to be at that point, but also not necessarily desirable. It, it's, people aren't particularly happy who are the very, very best of. There's something very trite about saying we'll take every area and move it up to some area that scores really highly for a particular reason. Because when you look at those particular reasons, you find out it isn't about the area. For instance, most people in Kensington and Chelsea didn't grow up there. They weren't born there. It wasn't Kensington and Chelsea that made them rich. They got their money from somewhere else, and that's where they arrived. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to, just to pick you up on one thing, is tackling income inequality enough? Because one of the things I took from Piketty and Co was that actually it's wealth as much as income now that is the real stumbling block when it comes to talking about more equality. Uh, wealth inequality is extremely important as well. If you include the income that people generate from their wealth, their, their income on interest, yeah. Uh, in, in a way, you begin to address wealth inequalities when you look at addressing income inequalities. Um, the most important thing with wealth is not allowing people to hide it um, so they don't declare the income that they get simply by sitting there and doing nothing because they are wealthy. But yes, we, we, we're not going to sort out uh, the major problems of Britain without sorting out the wealth inequality gap. This is a really old gap. I mean, in some counties of England, it dates back to 1066 where the majority of land is still owned by the families that, that William the Conqueror handed it to. Um, so it's, it's, you know, not an easy thing, but there are many other countries, China, Italy, where you're simply not allowed or taxed incredibly highly if you want to own two, three or four properties. We have the opposite attitude here. It's absolutely fine to own as many properties as you like. The council tax is minimal, about the lowest wealth tax in the world. It's lower. I won't promise not to talk about Kensington and Chelsea again, but Kensington <laughs> no, and Chelsea, it's less half what it is in Barking and Dagenham. You know, we positively encourage wealth inequality in Britain, safe haven for tax dodging billionaires. And that is a very dangerous basis for a country. So the wealth inequality needs to be look, looked at. I don't think it's as important as income inequality. It is a one sort of shot possibility for dealing with a, a huge financial crisis that's caused by an event like a pandemic, uh, which is why you see so many scare stories about wealth taxes, uh, because this government may well begin to look at wealth taxes uh, as a way to deal with the debt that, that, that they have had to amass. And, and I infer from that answer that you think that we should move towards something in the way of a more serious property tax in this country than what we already have with the sort of outdated yeah. bandings of council tax. We, we should move to, towards something that was imposed on Ireland by the Troika. Ireland had no proper property register, let alone a property tax. And within a year, they managed to register all properties when the Troika, when they were in financial trouble after 2008, demanded it. 
and then have a tax which is which is progressive. Um, it doesn't just go up. It's not just proportional to the value of your house. Uh, if your home is worth over, I think, a million euros, it's, it's even higher. And that was done in less than a year. So the arguments that you can't do this in, in an emergency are just trite. The arguments that people can't pay it. What's always put up a really annoyingly stupid, I don't want to be rude, but you know, people say, oh, but what about the widow in the million pound house? How can she pay the wealth tax on the million pound house? Well, she gets a mortgage. And, and when she dies and passes the house on, uh, that part which she owes because she's had to pay a wealth tax is taken is taken by the bank who has the mortgage. So the idea that the wealthy cannot pay a wealth tax, we're stuck at that in Britain and, and it's ridiculous. But it's a it's a one off. Wealth also disappears at certain times. It disappears if you get inflation, which is entirely possible. It disappears when you don't have very, very high income people who can actually afford to keep up country houses. They cost money to keep up. Um, so we saw the value of country houses fall in the 1940s, 50s and 60s in Britain as income inequality increased. So, so the two are very, very much uh, closely linked. Inheritance as well um, you know, matters. And if you make your country a place for those who inherit millions and billions to come and hide, you know, then we end up being servants for the, for the wealthy again. And there's a memory here. A hundred years ago, the most common job for women in Britain was to work in service. Um, that's where we've come from. We've come from a position of upstairs, downstairs, where the top 1% had 25% of all income and almost all the wealth. And there is a danger of heading back to that. Realistically, though, it's the last thing I'm going to ask you on this, because I want to move on to the pandemic a little bit. But realistically, can you address the iniquities of our housing system and win the next election? It depends what happens to the house prices. If the government manages to keep the house prices high, which has been a major aim of government since 2010, help to buy was the biggest spend, then probably not. Uh, the Conservative vote is held up by high house prices. When house prices fell in 1989 uh, through to the early 90s, the Conservative Party lost control of the outer London boroughs where house prices fell. So that is key. Once house prices begin to fall, remember, these are some of the highest house prices in Europe. You've got to go to San Francisco to find somewhere more expensive than where you and I are currently talking in Oxford. Once house prices begin to fall, then the whole game changes over what people uh, think and think that they hold. But currently, you've got 40% of the population sitting there either owning outright or almost owning outright, thinking that the, that the home they're living in can be sold for a third a million, half a million, a million pounds. Now, it can't be because the people who are going to buy it don't exist. But if you think you're that well off, you're going to vote for the political party who says they'll look after your wealth that you think you have and will stop those people trying to get it. That's the situation we're in. So we need house price fall before it becomes possible to say a house is a home. Uh, we should be looking after people's ability to get shelter. You need to worry about your children and your grandchildren. Most younger adults are having to rent potentially for the rest of their lives in Britain. We need to open up people's eyes uh, to what's going on. The enormous expansion in private landlords uh, who are only about 2%, maybe 3% of the population. You know, If you want your children and your grandchildren to be paying for, well, if they ever come back, the cruise holidays, of very successful landlords then carry on as we are uh, but if you want people to be able to settle down as it used to be possible in the 70s and 80s to get a mortgage in your 20s to start a family to feel secure if you want that again 
you're going to have to change things. That's really interesting. We're going to take a very, very quick break now and we will be back with you in just a moment. Hello there, I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe, specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Do you think the pandemic is going to make the British people more receptive to arguments for greater equality? I think the pandemic is, is almost unarguably the most important event since the end of the Second World War for Britain, maybe for, for, for much of Europe. Uh, and it changes the Overton window of, of, of what is possible. It has made people understandably scared, made people who felt economically they were safe realise they're not safe, uh, made people think that there's more to life than they thought before. And in particular, made people worry about their health in a way that many never had. Most people, I mean, it's good, don't think about their mortality, but they've been, they've been forced to. Um, so if a event was going to change hearts, minds, realities, and what's possible, um, this is such a bigger event than Brexit. And it's interesting, actually, isn't it? You know, because, uh, and I'm certainly guilty of having said Brexit was sort of the nearest thing to a war and might change things. But as it progressed, it didn't feel like it was. Whereas the pandemic and the legacy of the pandemic, although people say the legacy of Brexit will be bigger economically, you know, mentally, I think this is going to stay with, with this generation at, at, at least. And it, what it says at one very basic level, what a pandemic transmitted by a virus says, is we don't just live with people and their families. There is such a thing as society. That society isn't just the society in which the disease is spread, but it is also how what you need is delivered to make your life possible, which you've taken for granted because somebody had told you in the 1980s there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals and their families. Well, you know, as we try and struggle through eight, nine months of this, right through to the spring, even if the when the vaccines begin to get rolled out, it's clearly a social endeavour and it has made the lives of, of middle class people more precarious. And when middle class people and upper middle class people, when their lives become precarious, as they did in the late 1930s, that's when you can get really progressive change. Uh, that group couldn't afford a doctor by 1938, 1939. That group wanted a National Health Service, which is partly why we got a National Health Service. It wasn't by or for the working class. It was for the precarious uh, middle class. We have a precarious middle class again. And has the pandemic revealed anything to you about inequality that you hadn't really appreciated before? Uh, yeah, so an odd thing to me, um, how angry very rich people are about being curtailed over their movements. So I have been contacted, the conspiracy theorists who contact me saying this isn't true or, you know, it, all the tests don't work, are tending to email me from the sides of pools in various parts of Europe. And they're really angry. Um, and there's, there are even conspiracy theories amongst the very rich that this is all made up so that people on the left can take control again and so on. And I, I just haven't really, I know. So I'm being honest with you, that's my honest reaction. The thing I'm utterly shocked about. The most bizarre one is 
there's this there's a conspiracy theory called the great reset and the advocators of the great reset if you email if you google it is the world economic forum who meet at davos and these people think the world economic forum is some secret socialist kind of cabal anyway i, I hadn't realized how much wealthy people enjoy freedom of movement freedom of travel uh, and the idea of having to isolate for two weeks and so on they, they just find utterly utterly terrible and, and that's been a shock to me there was some very funny wag on twitter who uh, quoted nigel farage starting his new political party and said saying i never thought i'd see the day when nigel farage came out as a, cha as, a as the champion of free movement which i thought was rather good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, actually we can't we can't finish there's a couple more things i want to sort of touch on and we can't finish this without giving you a chance to plug your most recent book so what can we learn from the world's happiest country, which you argue is Finland? Yes, this, this is a, a book called Fintopia, which I wrote with uh, Anika Kologian. Um, and it, Finland's quite incredible. In the next few weeks, so at some point in December, Statistics Finland will hopefully reduce that, will release their annual statistics, showing how Finland ranks first, second or third in over 100 <laughs> social statistics, uh, beats every other country in the world. Uh, best education system, education results, has had free school meals since 1943, so they're just called lunch. Um, lowest infant mortality rate recorded in the world. Most green country in many ways, happiest country by, by the World Happiness Index. It goes on and on. Now, of course, there was always going to be a country that, that scored highly. Uh, the fact that it happens to be in Europe, I think, is, is, is you know, very good news for us. Uh, but what is unusual is just on how many things Finland as well. And it has lower GDP per capita than say Norway and Sweden. Um, and there's a sort of quiet sense of purpose about Finland over, it, it just has to be decent. So everything came together there. And we should simply look to places like Finland when we're asking, you know, how do you reduce homelessness? Well, Finland can show you because they already have done that more successfully than anywhere else in Europe not just Finland, and the jump to Finland is a, is a very big jump. Um, I would advocate, first of all, looking towards being more like Germany. And at the last um, general election, the Labour Party had a manifesto, which was to increase public spending up to just below the levels of Germany. And that was seen as impossible, even though, of course, we're now spending more than that. Um, if you were to advocate moving public spending to the levels of Finland, people wouldn't take you seriously in the UK because we are one of the lowest spending and taxing countries in Europe and Finland is one of the highest. This doesn't apply to you obviously but do you think academics do enough to get the message from their research out to policymakers or what we might call the real world? I think academics really do try. There is just so little opportunity uh, to get it out so it is thousands of times harder to get a page or half a page in the Guardian uh, than it is to get an article published in a top academic journal simply because of how much space there is and how many people are, are trying. So I think academics do try. Uh, the conversation is very, very good. It, it, that's a great way of, and because it's only reserved for academics, you have to have a PhD to publish in the conversation, that, that's good. I think they try, but quite a lot are disheartened. And also the first time you do it, it's quite a shock, the attacks you get dealing with those. And many people revert 
and come out of the real world and hide back in the ivory tower where it's a little bit more comfortable. And I can understand that. But if you persevere, the, the attacks wash off after, after several years. <laughs> do you think universities should do more to help their staff engage in this way? Yes, they, they could. I mean, certainly if you, uh, and actually being a member of this thing called a conversation, which means you, you, you have free access uh, helps. Uh, I think, but not, not bully them into it because there will always never be enough slots. Um, you know, if you think about, just think whoever's listening to this, the information you've absorbed over the last 48 hours and where it came from, somebody speaking for 15 seconds on the, on the news, on telly, will have a huge, huge reach. Uh, and it's likely you may well in 48 hours not have read anything which was designed for a relatively small audience. So you know, don't underestimate how difficult it is. It would be useful because people work so hard in universities and they know so much about particular things. It's such a shame when those who actually know about something don't get to speak about it, particularly when people who know very little are allowed to speak um, so much the way our media. Uh, and, sorry, and I should, by the way, plug Finland again on this. It has an absolutely incredible media which searches out people who really know what they're talking about to speak and teaches children at a young age how to spot fake news and people who are speaking off the top of their heads who don't have any expertise. And I'm afraid on, on those indices of, of well, germ, journalism, we rank towards the bottom and Finland ranks towards the top. You know, you've, you've got the sight of a government, many members of whom sort of dismissed experts during and after the Brexit referendum, now relying on experts, sort of almost sort of quasi-religiously following the science, as they say. Do you think actually the reputation of experts might be helped by the experience of the pandemic and that politicians might start to take those things more, more seriously or is it just simply instrumental? Uh, no, no, I think the, the need for expertise will be increased by the pandemic. Hopefully people will realise that a lot of the arguments between academics this year have been because this is a new disease and so experts can't know everything. But, you know, given the news on vaccinations and if all goes smoothly, it is quite an incredible scientific story and such a more valuable scientific story than, say, landing on the moon in the late 1960s, you know, which was all about ego and showing off, for, you know, and very, very expensive, but not that useful. Whereas actually taking what looks as if now it may be the worst post-Second World War disease and finding a way to reduce the harm of that within so, so few months. That's quite an incredible scientific uh, story and a story of people working across different countries. And a particular story of, of the company in Germany that have done this is, is fascinating. So I'm optimistic. Already universities, by the way, are putting on many, many more master's courses in epidemiology because... Right because they're aware next time we get a new disease, hopefully we'll have thousands more epidemiologists ready uh, to look at it. Uh, so no, I, I'm optimistic about, about this in general. And I think it will also teach us about being cautious about what matters most and about how we can live in a world in which we don't fly around uh, on aeroplanes as much as we used to, because we haven't mentioned climate change and we kind of obligatory you know, it's bigger than everything else that we've talked about. Well, I hope the success of the scientists means that in the not too distant future, we can meet up, have a beer and drink to the scientists. <laughs> Cheers. I hope so too. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. Daddy, thank you ever so much.